Hi, Katie. Welcome, everyone, to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people and events from history you may not, may or may not have heard of. <laughs> yes, that's right. We've decided to add events to our repertoire. So one week you might hear a person like Robin Hood last week, and then the next week you might hear an event, or it could be all mixed up. That's partly because we've run out of people to talk about, but also partly because we oh, yes. thought about some interesting events we wanted to share with you guys. So, um, yeah, if you have a person or an event that you'd want us to discuss hit us up and we may well do it so i'm gonna start us off with an event the first Amazing. event the first event not the first it's not like the big bang no, that would yeah. be like the first event <laughs> but like our first event i'm really yeah, excited um, it's a bit of a nerdy niche history uh military history one but cool i thought i'd do it just because i find it kind of funny in a way, <laughs> okay. I don't know if it's going to come across as funny. It's probably just going to come across as really granular and nerdy, but I'm going to do it anyway. Everyone loves a bit of nerdy military <laughs> history, so. So, have you ever heard of Operation Compass? I mean, I haven't heard of Operation Compass, but maybe I have heard of the operation. I just didn't know it was called that. But no, I haven't heard of Operation Compass. So, it's essentially the uh, the operation, the battle that kicked off the war in North Africa. Oh, okay. No, I haven't. Starting with the Italian invasion of Egypt and ending in catastrophic disaster for the Italians. Let's do it. Let's hear okay, all then. about it. So let's do a bit of background first. So on the 23rd of October 1936, Italy signed the Italo-German Protocol, which was basically the precursor to the Axis Agreement or the Tripartite Pact. Which yes. won't be signed until later in September 1940, but, 40, but this was the beginning. So, however, this version of the pact was rather vague and didn't really obligate either side too much. Although both sides did know war was on the cards eventually, yeah. Italy had hoped war wouldn't come until much later in 1942 or even 1944. Um, Germany actually also hoped war would come much later. Hitler didn't actually expect the Western Allies to come to Poland's aid. Um, so readily. Well, I don't think he really wanted war at all. He just, like, wanted power. Yeah. But so if war was, like, the way he could get that, then great. But otherwise, you know. I guess it worked out right for him in the end. Well, that beginning bit, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not in the end. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out pretty bad for him in the end. But they managed to destroy France pretty quickly. But anyway, that's later on. Yeah. Um, but Italy, they really did need that time. Desperately, yeah. desperately need that paper. No, that time. So, on paper, Italy had one of the world's largest armies, and Mussolini often bragged about Italy's eight million bayonets. However, the reality was not quite so impressive. So, according to estimates by Beerman and Smith, the Italian regular army could field no more than two hundred thousand troops at the war's beginning in nineteen thirty-nine. Um. Although the Italians had tried to modernise, the majority of the Italian army uh, personnel was lightly armed, infantry lacking sufficient most transport or heavy artillery support. Worst of all, not enough money had been budgeted to train the men. Uh, and so most men received the majority of their training at the front. So they just turned up to battle with no training. Couldn't even nice. fire a rifle. Brilliant. I mean, that's, a, that's the way you want your army to be, right? Just. It just... reminds me of that... Guys given a uniform and a rifle and just kicked out. There you go. It reminds me of that bit in 300 where he's like, what is your profession? He's like, I'm a 
pot washer and he's like what is your profession i'm a butcher and he's like sparta what is your profession and they're all just like (laughs) (laughs) very much like that (laughs) (laughs) but not sparta um so also their air units were largely antiquated or made of mainly biplanes uh, at the beginning of the war not really what you want to be fighting against uh, spitfires with but never mind uh, and they had a critical lack of fuel which hampered Italian operations throughout the war uh, so Italy didn't jump into the war until the 10th of June 1940 when France was already beaten seven days before the surrender to Germany, uh, like a goddamn jackal. Uh, Still, (laughs) the invasion was a disaster. The Italians took huge casualties and reached none of their objectives. Um, For more information on that, recommend the uh, Mario uh, Roatta episode. Yeah, go back and listen to that one. He was super interesting and... Bit of a monster. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) and so it was to this backdrop that the Italian army started what would be the long drawn out seesaw North African campaign of World War II. I don't understand why after they had like so many casualties and so much defeat, they decided to start another campaign. It doesn't make any sense. They, they started like tons of them. They went for yeah. Greece, they went for North Africa, they went, <laughs> they chucked they chucked like troops into yeah, Russia. Yeah, it was a bit crazy. Bad times. <laughs> all in all. <laughs> Uh, so, like most European powers, Italy had an African empire. It had yes. what is now Eritrea and Somalia in East Africa, along with what is now known as Ethiopia, which they conquered only in 1936, and it had Libya uh, to the west of all of that. Uh, so, the Italians had uh, dreams of conquering a new Roman empire, and so... All of these colonies were packed full of Italian and colonial troops. So, initially, the troops in Libya had been divided in two. Half the army faced the French in the west in Algeria, uh, or what was then known simply as French North Africa, uh, while the other half faced the British in Egypt. So with the defeat of the French there and their withdrawal from the war, the Italians could move all their troops uh, east to face the British. Uh, now, Italy was supposed to be Mussolini's grand prize. He wanted it, desperately. He dreams of holding a, a military um, victory parade through the streets of Alexandria uh, while riding uh, on a great big white horse they picked out. Great all big re- one. Had Huge it ready. one. Did he have it ready? He had it. He had it already. He was <laughs> oh ship God. it over. All he wanted for Christmas was Alexandria. That's that's the song that was playing in <laughs> it at that time. Uh, and so Mussolini ordered Marshal Graziani, uh, commander of all forces in North Africa, to launch an attack with the entire 10th Army across the Libyan border and into Egypt. Now, it's worth noting that Graziani had misgivings about this. He expressed doubts about the capabilities of the largely non-mechanised force to defeat the British, who, though smaller uh, in numbers, were motorised. However, after being reinforced uh, from the 5th Army, the 10th Army controlled the equivalent of four corps. So that's 150,000 infantry, 1,600 guns, 600 tankettes and tanks, and 331 aircraft. The British, on the other hand, had 36,000 men, 275 tanks, 120 guns, and 142 aircraft at the disposal. Mm. So that is quite a difference. 
Yeah, that is a difference. Uh, also, we- can I address tankettes? Is that tankettes. like mini tanks? Basically, yeah. They're That's a bit adorable. <laughs> they look, they're just like cars. They're the same size as a car. That's adorable. They've got little machine guns on them. They are quite cute, actually. <laughs> oh my god. I so obviously, one. I've got like model tanks and buying those. They're just like, diddy. Diddy little things. I can't drive a car, but if I could, I'd be all over a tankette. Okay, go on then. Uh, so, and with those sort of numbers, Mussolini told Graziani to just get on with it. Get the fuck on with it, mate. Get on You've with it. Just get me Egypt. I've got my horse. <laughs> I want to just ride through Alexandria. And so we start with Operation E. Operaziano E or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's Italian. <laughs> and so Graziani launched Operation E on the 13th of September, 1940. So as the Italians advanced, the British just withdrew. They couldn't be bothered. They're not going to bother. They've got 36,000 men. They're just going to just withdraw yeah. in front of this massive sea of infantry that are coming towards them. Yeah, good good shout. However, a small force of Coldstream guards were able to harass the Italians as they moved. Being fully mechanized, the uh, British forces could hit the Italians with artillery while always ensuring that they were out, re- out of range of return fire. And anyone who plays real-time strategy games on computer... Knows yeah. how fucking annoying that is. <laughs> that is the most irritating thing in the world. Uh, so after capturing Fort Capuzzo, uh, which had fallen to the British during an earlier skirmish, the advance stopped after just three days and after no major fighting uh, at uh, Mactilla. So that's just 16 uh, kilometres, 10 miles, beyond Sidi Barani, the last major town on the Libyan-Egyptian border. And there, the Italians dug in, building five fortified camps as they waited for reinforcements and supplies. Now, I don't really know what reinforcements they needed. They have 150,000 men. Um, however, perhaps... More s- bullets or something. Yeah, perhaps the supply thing makes sense. The Italians are very, very little in the way of motor transport, which made keeping the, their forces adequately supplied almost impossible. But this is what the Italians always did. They just poured men into, like, campaigns. And they were like, yeah, you can't... I mean, the problem is... The generals are like, the problem is we, we can't supply the men that we have here. We don't need any more men. Like, can you just send us, like, the fuel and supplies we need? They're like, no, just take men. There you go, more men. I'm more sorry, men to but die. we actually can't do anything with these men. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, not the best strategy, really. And so, with the Italians camped out just 10 miles into Egypt, the British decided to launch Operation Compass. Okay. Right. Following the Italian advance, Field Marshal Wavell, who was head of Middle East Command, so that included all of like Middle East, the Middle from, East. like <laughs> um like uh, Iraq, Iran, like all the way across to Egypt. Um so he decided to launch a limited operation to push the Italians back. Originally, Operation Compass plan was planned as a simple five day raid. Uh, but consideration was given to continuing the operation if it were successful. So on the 28th of November, Wavell wrote, I do not entertain extravagant hopes for this operation, but I do wish to make certain that if a big opportunity occurs, we are prepared morally and mentally and administratively to use it to the fullest. So now enters British officer General Richard O'Connor. Now this guy... He's an interesting figure. He's he's barely known outside of the World War Two geek circles, but um, had history have gone slightly differently, he no doubt would have been as famous as Monty. Maybe maybe famous instead of him. Oh, okay. 
So, as the commander of the 36,000 men of the Western Desert Group, he was able to pull off probably one of the most impressive military feats in all of history. Mm. Uh, So, the main problem with the Italian position was that each fortified camp was so far away from one another as to not be uh, mutually supporting. So, clearly the developments during the First World War and the whole front lines thing had passed the Italian commanders by... So this was essentially a 19th century battle plan if your 19th century battle plan was shit. <laughs> that is basically what they were working with. Um, and so on the 9th of December, the Indian 11th Infantry Brigade and uh, accompanying infantry tanks of the 7th Royal Tank Regiment managed to pass between the camps of Safafi and uh, Nibba. Oh, no. Nibaiwa, there you go, and Nibaiwa. Um, so they just passed through a gap, basically. These camps were so far apart that an entire brigade of infantry and tanks could just nip through. And they didn't notice camps. them. They didn't know. They had no <laughs> That's idea. hilarious. So, through a desert. All the dust being kicked up, everything. Didn't That's see it. That's so funny. <laughs> uh, so while the Nibaiwa... Uh, Nibaiwa camp was distracted by artillery fire on its eastern perimeter. The Indians, supported by Matilda attacks, rocked up on its western side as if out of nowhere at around uh, 500 hours in the morning. Five in the morning. That's not sort of what you really want to be doing, is it? I don't want to be no. awake at that time. I definitely don't want to be fighting. There's a five in the mornings? Who knew? So it's worth noting this time that the Matilda tanks, let's talk about those guys, those are all monsters so uh, these earned the moniker of uh, Queen of the Desert through essentially being well, invinci- invincible basically they had managed to give the Germans their only bloody nose during the French campaign and it had only been stopped when the Germans turned their 88mm aircraft guns on them so big old cannons designed to shoot bombers out of the sky they had to turn those and fire at the tanks with them uh, so this time, the ATA was about the only gun that could destroy these tanks. And of course, the Italians had none of these. All they had were antiquated 47mm Eleventino guns. And the shells uh, from these bounced off the Matildas like pea shooters. Um, Why are they called Matilda tanks? Uh, it's just like uh, a nickname going to them. The, like, British tanks uh, had really generally like, quite boring. Uh, A12, the A12 infantry tank. They were like called A something, and then they were given like a little nickname. Okay, fair I'm enough. not sure why Matilda though. I think I, I have a feeling for that Queen Matilda, like, maybe I don't know. I think it was the Australians that gave them that name. It gave it that name. Oh well. It seems like um, it, it sounds quite Australian. I don't know why. It just does. Um. Anyway, so these they they were like they're monsters basically. Um. <laughs> Well, this especially this time of the war. Um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, so the shells would just be bouncing off like pea shooters. So this basically really highlights how poorly equipped the Italians were. Um, however, despite the woeful performance of the guns themselves, the Italian crews should be commended. So they were generally better trained than the rank and file men and tended to fall by their guns rather than surrender, which they frequently did because their guns were shit. They were fucking terrible guns. <laughs> they were just um, bad. <laughs> so the camp fell by uh, 08, 30 hours. 8, 30 so in the three morning. and a half hours. Three and a half hours of fighting. Over 2,000 Italians were captured, as was a large supply cache. The British only lost eight officers and 48 men. Like that's wounded. So that's like... Amazing. That's like but ridiculous. <laughs> that's nothing. I mean, obviously, and this is only like, that's sad for those people, but... 
So that doesn't even include the other Italian ca- uh, casualties. That's just captured. So yeah, that was a massive disparity. Yeah. The Indian 5th Infantry Brigade um, immediately then advanced towards the ne- uh, next target, which was the Termas. Uh, camp. The attack on the Italian camp of Thomas West began at 1.15, uh, 10 to 2 in the afternoon. We're going to use the 800 hour things because it's just annoying. Uh, on the <laughs> same day, so 9th of December again. Again, spearheaded by tanks of the uh, 7th Royal Tank Regiment. So the Samars was held by the Italian 2nd Libyan Colonial Infantry Division. Again, the attack came from the wrong side and the British tanks broke through with little opposition and the entire camp was taken by the end of the day. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the 4th Armour Brigade of the uh, British 7th Armour Division drove north, forcing a 400-strong Italian ga- garrison at uh, at Cezia to surrender without much of a fight at all. So after taking those guys to prisoner, the 4th uh, Armour Brigade then moved on uh, to Sidi Barani, again supported by uh, Indian infantry. So this was the primary objective for the day. So at four o'clock in the afternoon, with the support of all artillery paces available, they made their attack, with the town falling by nightfall, along with the entire Italian 4th Blackshirt Division. So that's about... Italian divisions were quite... like a little bit smaller than other divisions, I think. So we're talking about 10,000 men here. 10,000 yeah. men falling to, like, I don't know, a, a couple of thousand. It was a stunning victory, basically. Um, so with Sidi Barani captured, the British and Indian forces then moved on to the Italian 1st Libyan Colonial Infantry Division, which surrendered on the 11th of December. So that was kind of like more an open ground. As a nice little bonus, Buck Buck fell on the same day with large numbers of Italian prisoners and weapons captured. So between the 8th and 11th of December, the British forces captured or destroyed 237 artillery pieces, 73 medium tanks, and took 40,000 Italian colonial troops prisoner. Wow. So they've already <laughs> destroyed more than their own force in yeah, the first few days of this campaign. Crazy. So the next stage, then we on to the next stage. So around the 14th of December, Wavell transferred the, the Indian 4th Division to Sudan for future actions against Italian East Africa. So they kind of was annoyed at O'Connor a little bit. He kind of wanted to press his advantage. So O'Connor was in exchange given the Australian 6th Division uh, as a replacement. However, this division had no battle experience and was com- in- hadn't been fully equipped yet. Weirdly, this wouldn't matter. So on the 3rd <laughs> of January, the Australians launched their first attack ever on Bardia. Again, coming from the west where no Allied troops were supposed to be. They had just managed to nip past the it- Italians like all the other attacking forces. So during this attack, the sappers managed to blow gaps in the barbed wire with Bangalore torpedoes, then filed in and broke down the sides of the anti-tank ditches with picks and shovels, uh, which is pretty badass under fire. Bit of engineering work just under fire. Some roadworks while being <laughs> milted. Uh, so the Italian infantry and 23 Matilda 2 tanks of the 7th uh, Royal Tank Regiment managed to overrun defences and took 8,000 prisoners in their initial attack. This attack cut the fort too, uh, dividing the Italian forces into a northern group and a southern group. So on the 5th of January, the Australian 19th Infantry Brigade launched its attack on the Meriga sector. This is uh, the 5th of January 1941. Yes, 1941, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so this is basically um, what they're saying. Our body is a, like a fort, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was stack on the uh, Mariga sector with support from six, just six Matilda tanks this time. By 11.15 in the uh, morning, C Company of the Brigade had reached the switch line and captured two strong points and the Italian troops in this area just surrendered. That was <laughs> enough. That was enough for them. In the early afternoon, Italian Lieutenant General Ruggiero Tracini and Brigadier General Alessandro de Guidi were all captured. The following like this... the two most Italian names I've ever heard. I know. Ridiculous, aren't they? <laughs> I just want to say it with... <laughs> Alessandro. <laughs> um, following this, the Italian troops in the northern sector just threw in the towel too. I mean, like you would do, your generals have surrendered, so what's the, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, of course. On. Yeah. By the end of the day, all Italian troops have surrendered and Bardia fell under Allied control. The battle ended on the 5th of January 1941 and about 25,000 prisoners were taken along with 400 guns, 130 light tanks and medium tanks and hundreds and hundreds of motor vehicles. Perhaps most importantly, a large pumping station was captured that would soon become a significant source of fresh water for the Allies in the region. Mm, that is important. Yeah, in the desert, you need a bit of water, a little bit of rehydration. Yeah. Uh, so this fight made the Australian troops famous. In the United States, the Washington Times Herald newspaper ran the headline, Hardy Wild-Eyed Aussies Called World's Finest Troops. I mean, it's pretty impressive. They didn't have all their weapons. They'd never fought a battle before, and they managed to just absolutely annihilate uh, an Italian fort taking like barely any casualties themselves so I mean they probably shouldn't have fought so well because now they're just going to spearhead everything yeah I mean it's not really I mean like there's some jobs where you just don't want the praise I think and this is probably (laughs) one but anyway they did what they did so next came to Bruck uh, so this was attacked on the 21st of January uh, 1941. So it was a little bit of a break from... Got a little bit of time off before uh, they had to do this. <laughs> Enjoy the desert weather. <laughs> Makes some sandcastles. I don't know. <laughs> sandcastles! Uh, again, the Australians took the lead here. So dug in Italian tanks and defensive bunkers gave the attackers a bit of a rough time, but one by one they were all silenced. That night, the headquarters of the Australian 19th Brigade offered a ceasefire... But General Patassi, Patassi Manella, uh, res- had received a, a call <laughs> from Benito Mussolini that day, ordering to put garrison 25,000 men to fight until the last man. And so oh, it was no. rejected. Of course, of course he did. Yeah. He's, God, he's he really there, just wanted to get that white horse. <laughs> uh, later that night, Italian SM-79 bombers carried out a low-level attack on the Australian positions unexpectedly. And this is like quite typical. I mean, this happened like in France. This happened like elsewhere. Unfortunately for them, the troop concentration they attacked was actually an enclosure containing eight thousand Italian prisoners of war, and so the attack caused hundreds of casualties among their own countrymen. I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. That's really tragic. But yeah, that's that's what happened. Stupid. Bombed their own troops. Well done. Oh god. Um, on the following day, General Mellera surrendered himself, but no his troops. I mean, like, if you wanted a story to sum up the Italy during World War II, that's it. General just surrendering on, surrendering on his own. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out. I quit. Sorry, guys, you carry on. I'm, out. I'm off. I'm off. Have, have a good one, guys. Enjoy yourselves. Uh, the remaining troops were placed under command of Brigadier General Vinci- uh, Vincenzo <laughs> della Mura. 
Vincenzo, that's that's a great Italian name. Yeah, that is. That's um, um, like Vincenzo Perugia, see the episode on the man who stole the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so commanding officer of the Italian 61st uh, Infantry Division. Uh, but he ordered the surrender of the 17,000 troops who remained inside the garrison on 23rd of January. So, I mean, like, they held up for an extra day under him. They might have just surrendered with their with their original general, but never mind. Um, the Australian forces managed to secure Tobruk on the 24th of January after all remaining Italian outposts outside of Tobruk had been captured. So during this brief battle, the Allies managed to take 236 artillery pieces, 23 medium tanks, and 200 other vehicles, and thousands and thousands of Italian prisoners of war. The Allies suffered fewer than 500 casualties, most of which were Australian. I mean, it's ridiculous. The numbers are just crazy. It's just Is that just, like, bad planning and resources? Yeah, they were poorly supplied, poorly trained, um... Yeah, they had. They didn't know what to do when they when they were attacked from the like from the flank. Everything they fired at the Matildas was just bouncing off. I mean, they were pretty demoralised by this point. They were just poorly armed, poorly trained, and just didn't have anything to answer. Like you know, they outnumbered the Allies by like so many. But yeah, but just that had doesn't nothing, always nothing mean. To counter them. Yeah. Um. So next, O'Connor ordered an attack on Derna. So um. And this commenced on the 26th of January. Again, the Aussies took the brunt of this one. I mean, again. Good on, should have been so good. A little too eager, guys. <laughs> Chill out a bit. Anyway, en route on the 24th of Jan, the, the Allied troops ran into a newly organised Italian Special Armoured Brigade um, under the command of General Valentino Babini. So the Italians here tried to play the Allies at their own game. The plan was to encircle the advancing Allied troops, attack their flank, and get their own sweet prisoner stash. Uh, However, I mean, it it didn't go very well, obviously. In the ensuing combat, nine Italian tanks were destroyed and seven British, and the Italian counteroffensive failed. I mean, like, it didn't take much. Just nine tanks, and we're like, ah, we're out. That's enough. That's enough fighting for us. <laughs> After seeing off the Italian tanks, the Allies moved on to Derna, which fell on the 26th of Jan, along with most of the Italian 60th Infantry Division, uh, which was basically destroyed. So that was it. It was a massive disaster, and the Italians decided it was time to retreat. So the Italian invasion of Egypt had been a proper disaster. There would be no pony ride through the streets of Alexandria <laughs> for Mussolini. Pony. Instead, <laughs> instead, the series of losses suffered by the Italians was so grave that it triggered the decision to evacuate Libya. So instead of gaining a new colony, they just lost their existing one in Libya. Oh, God. So as the remainder of the Italian 10th Army fled west, the British and Australians gave chase. Elements of the advanced Commonwealth units reached the Benghazi Tripoli Road on the afternoon of the 5th of February and quickly set up roadblocks near Sidi Salah. 30 minutes later, the leading elements of the Italian 10th Army arrived and they were engaged in battle. They managed to break out by the evening and by that time, the British 4th Armoured Brigade had come up from behind. And so on the 6th and 7th, the Italians attempted to break out with tanks. Uh, The fighting was fierce, but generally without positive results. 
The final breakout attempt took place on the morning of the 7th of February when the last 20 Italian medium tanks of the Italian Special Armour Brigade, the same one that tried to uh, encircle the Allies earlier, uh, broke through the first line of Allied infantry but was stopped by British field gun positions near the regimental headquarters, uh, which they're behind, which stopped the loss of these tanks. So discouraged with the latest failure, the Italian 10th Army surrendered in its entirety. Both Babini and uh, Bergonzoli uh, were captured. And so ended Operation Compass and the Italian 10th Army. So in about 10 weeks, the the Allied forces had managed to advance 800 kilometres and capture a total of 130,000 Italian and colonial personnel, including 22 officers of general rank. What are they going to do with all those people? I mean... It's just ridiculous. When you look at like the camps that they had set up, it's just it's just ludicrous. It's like Glastonbury, basically. Glastonbury like, for not the fun. Of, yeah, but not fun. No music. Just <laughs> lots of sad-looking Italian sand. soldiers. <laughs> sad-looking Italians with sandcastles <laughs> everywhere. On top of this, 400 tanks and 1,290 artillery pieces. For this victory, the, the Allies suffered 494 killed and 1,000... 225 wounded. The Allies could have driven the Italians from Africa entirely, driven them to the sea, stopped the formation of the Africa Corps, and foregone a further near three years of fighting in the desert. But Winston Churchill ordered the offensive halted so some of the men could be rerouted to defend Greece. So... The Axis, of course, did the opposite, transferring in Italian and German troops into the North African uh, theatre for a major counter-offensive. So, and so we would have all the famous battles that would follow. Also, during this Axis counter-offensive, the uh, brilliant Richard O'Connor, who commanded such a daring campaign, would be captured in a freak accident. So on the 6th of April, <laughs> it's crazy. O'Connor was called up to a Ford headquarters at uh, Marura. Unfortunately, he was never informed that this had moved to Tibimi and that the Germans were now swarming the place. So he was just captured by a random German patrol near Matuba. And Richard Connor spent the next two and a half years in a prisoner of war camp, mainly near Florence in Italy, but he was able to uh, escape and make his way back to Britain and was given command of the 8th Corps at Normandy. Oh. Um, I'll probably do an episode on uh, the many escape attempts of O'Connor at some point. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he's, he's covering everybody recovered off that. He, he wasn't quite the same commander after spending um, so many years in captivity. But yeah, but he commanded probably one of the greatest operations uh, of all time. And that's Operation Compass. There you go. Wow. That was great just example ridiculous. Of how terrible the Italians were during World War II. Um, oh, gosh. Really. Well, it wasn't yeah. really that far. I mean, like, they were just poorly trained, poorly supplied. I mean, they did fight quite, quite bravely for like what they had, but they were just, they were just sent into war completely unprepared. Yeah. Why Mussolini just wanted to ride through Alexandra on a white pony. Could have just this all could have been stopped if we were just given him a pony ride. Exactly, that's all I needed. Just invite him in to be like, if you want your pony ride, you can just have one. Ha- have a pony ride, yeah. it's fine. We'll even we can even get a couple of people to come out and cheer you. We'll pay some people or something. Yeah, there's loads of people that need jobs around here. We'll pay them. <laughs> 
That was cool. Mussolini. There we go. From for you military history nerds. Yeah, I know you're out there. <laughs> uh, what else are you doing this this weekend? I'm going to go see my mum. Oh, mummy. After a year, uh, half a year of not seeing her. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> How about you? Um, I'm going to see Spiral tomorrow. Oh, yes. To add um, on to your... Uh... My podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, um, I podcast for the website Screen Mayhem. I've done a couple of podcasts with them. And the latest one is called We See Saw. And it's where me and my friend Paul watch all the Saw movies in preparation for the upcoming Spiral, which is actually out already, but we're not seeing it until um, tomorrow. And... Um, we review them and oh my god it's been a wild wild ride <laughs> I'd completely forgotten everything that happened in Jigsaw the eighth one this is going to be my uh, listening material on the train ride back to Essex I think you need to start at the beginning as well start at number one because it's you won't have any idea what's going on unless you start the first one <laughs> which we realised about three three uh, movies into Saw we're like if you just jumped in, if you were like, oh, a Saw movie's on, I wonder what it's about, you would have no idea what was going on <laughs> because there's so much running plot where they're like, it's just make this more convoluted. Yeah, so yeah. Hot, head over to Screen Mayhem. I also did a podcast with them called The Scottish Film where I wa- me and my friend Paul watched all of the ad- adaptations of Macbeth ever made. That was fun. And we're going to do <laughs> another one as well, which I will tell you about in, in due course. So yeah, we're going to see Spiral, and then on Sunday we are, me and my boyfriend are going to the National Gallery. Oh, very nice. Yes, because it's those, open. Into those museums now we can. Yeah, I think they very have nice. taken down like a certain number of paintings to allow for social distancing, so I really hope that, you know, yeah. all my faves are still there. You know? <laughs> well, that's alright, they'll keep the hits up. The greatest hits. <laughs> the hits, greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, and then I guess you know putting this up. Yeah. <laughs> um. So if you have any ideas, like we said, please tweet us at Have You Ever Pod, or you can message us on Instagram again at Have You Ever Pod. And um, <laughs> follow us wherever you listen, and maybe give us a little review if you want. If you like. If you want to. If you're there. Um, if you're there yeah. already, you might as well just click that five stars and... If you're bored, I don't know, you okay. might have a moment where you're like, hmm, I might hit these five stars and write <laughs> some words. We, we'd appreciate it. Yeah. Or you don't even need to leave the review. You can just hit the five stars and then it will yeah. help us with the algorithm. That would be awesome. I have to admit, I don't do that often um, when I listen to podcasts. So I'm going to start doing it more often because I know that it really helps indie little podcasts like us. That it does. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>